0: Welcome to the Wisdom Factory Podcast.
1: My name is Amber. I'm here with Jordan, Nick, Rob, Roberto, and Preston. Yep,
2: remember my name. There you go. Yeah. Tonight
1: we will be talking about capitalism versus socialism. We're going to define both. We're going to discuss their merits, their advantages and disadvantages, um, examples, and then our own personal experiences and opinions. So... Yeah,
0: let's get going. Alright, so uh, I guess i am first crack at it because uh, I'm Jordan and I will be representing capitalism or at least talking about it, um, defining it for you guys. Just to sort of refresh your memory about what capitalism is because, uh, you know, when you live in a capitalist society, you sort of forget um, what it's all about. But before I do that, I just want to speak briefly about why we're actually having this podcast in the first place. Um, it's it's we're at a place in like the political climate where socialism is gaining ground. At least uh, you know you hear democratic socialists a lot. Their platforms are getting accepted into like mainstream uh, the, into the mainstream Democratic Party. And, you know, it's just something that you hear a lot, you know, and so I think it's something that we need to understand. People like to talk about socialism a lot. I know in my classes, almost every class I have, we, talk, we have, you know, in-deep discussions about what socialism is. Um, and it's something that it's, it's, you have a lot of, the chances are you have a lot of friends who are socialists on Facebook. Chances are someone you know is a socialist. Chances are, you know, you've, you have feelings um, about whether you are a socialist or a capitalist. And so we're just going to be talking about, you know, like Amber said, uh, the
2: merits and the advantages and
0: disadvantages. And if if of, I may of both add both one
2: thing, I was going to say, it. Like, like, one of the reasons why I think this is such an important topic, not just because of the political climate that exists mm-hmm. now, um, but also, you know, when we're discussing questions of statecraft and government and public policy, You know, that economic growth and economic fairness are some of the most important objectives that we have. You know, that consistently, like when you rank Americans' top issues, and the same goes for a lot of other countries, that the economy is something that people are very concerned about. And that what it is, is that capitalism and socialism are alternative ways of distributing resources. And, you know, it's in our interest to have the most economic growth. It's in our interest to distribute resources in the way that's most fair. Um, and there's a lot of arguments on both sides, you know, for each system being the one that achieves that. And I think, well, you know, at the end of the day, what capitalists and socialists are trying to achieve, even though we're of opposite ideologies, um, what we're trying to achieve is the same thing—an economy that benefits everyone, that's able to build, you know, a prosperous and successful civilization uh, that, you know, is, is able to benefit its people economically and attain civilizational greatness. Um, and that is very important to answer this question of which is better and what are the pros and cons of the different systems, um, because if we want to create the best outcomes, you know, we need to understand these arguments, and and they're very complex. Like even within capitalism and socialism, you have different schools of thought that we're going to be discussing, um, and that it doesn't necessarily mean we have to adhere to one ideology you know we can take pieces from different ones because one of the things i think is 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 um you know important to recognize that there's wisdom in a lot of different things and the best economic system might incorporate aspects of both capitalism and socialism and personally I'm a strong believer that that's the case
0: right so yeah so like the purpose of this podcast really is just to sort of inform you guys give you guys information about you know capitalism and socialism and then hopefully by the end of it you can sort of make a decision about which one you support which one you think is you know the best model the best way to organize the resources in our society because this is one of those things that uh, rarely that we talk about that impacts everybody. It impacts not only um, us, it impacts the entire world, you know, depending on... Like, like government alliances are oftentimes based on a capitalist model or a socialist system. So because this is such a significant issue, because it's something that, you know, because it's something that is just ubiquitous, I think it's important for us to, to, to take it right, right now and to take the challenge about Uh, looking at capitalism versus socialism. So the first thing I want to do is just explain a little bit about what capitalism is. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've all learned that it's basically uh, when goods and services are based on supply and demand and when you have a general free market that um, ideally is without government restriction. That's the purest form of capitalism, but rarely do we see that. You'll hear uh, the word laissez faire capitalism, and that's when, you know, you sort of let the market run free, you let the invisible hand um, sort of distribute the resources. Um, but uh, some features of capitalism are when uh, these exchanges of goods and services don't have checks and controls. So the government's not you know, putting all kinds of regulations and saying what a business can and can't do. Sort of the private individual is free to invest in capital and to invest in labor and to sort of build products and sell those products for a profit. Uh, so in order for that to happen there needs to be some prerequisites, and that is property rights for sure. The individual must be protected on what they own. They must they must have you know the intellectual property rights. They must have the ability to own you know factories. They must have the ability to sort of uh, facilitate contracts with with their labor. Um, so another big component of capitalism is consumer choice, right? This isn't going to be found in socialism. So like the individual has the has a demand, right? So they're they're the ones that create the demand. So we have the money and we choose what products that we want to buy. And that is something that, you know, determines what is going to be produced, you know, based on what the producer can sell. So consumer choice is going to be really big in understanding uh, capitalism, and it's actually one of the things that distinguish it from socialism. Um, Right, so moving on, we also have a little bit about the... A little bit about the history of capitalism, because it is a relatively new phenomenon uh, in the history of like economic models. Uh, socialism is more new than capitalism, but capitalism actually got its main uh, boost during the Industrial Age. So you had merc- mercantilist capitalists, you know, uh, sort of the merchant traders that would go off to different countries, and they would trade, and obviously the rec- the, the valuables that you had sold for much more, you know, across, you know, hundreds of miles on the ocean because, you know, it was just rare and it's that simple um, thing of supply and demand. And vice versa, you could bring in goods from, you know, if like if you're in Rome, you could bring in goods from China, you could bring in goods from India, or bring in goods from around the Mediterranean and sell those for a profit. Um, so, but that was only concentrated in the hands of very few individuals and it was very rocky because, you know, you had pirates and you had other things. So it wasn't really a main staple. But once you had sort of the industrial capacity, what you had was what really truly makes capitalism work, and that is the ability to add value and to sort of uh, sell a product for much more than it costs you to make it. And if you had the capital, if you could find the investments, you could invest in sort of the, the machine process, you could invest in labor, and you could create something that you could sell on the market. For much more than it cost you to create it and what that did was it, it just it led to massive profits all throughout society and that profit was then uh, reinvested into this process again and it just sort of created an economic explosion that uh, sort of was Uh, sort of that was like unprecedented. So now it wasn't just the merchant traders. Now it wasn't just the um, East India trading companies. Now the everyday man, because they were able to work in these factories, because they were able to get a salary, and because there was just all these different avenues of finance, all of these different uh, means of production were opened up. And this is something that started to become... uh, focused and centered on from uh, major governments because they realized that, you know what, this could give them the power, this could give them the leverage. This actually increases um, standard of livings for the people that, that live in these countries. So it was the advent of industrial uh, of the Industrial Revolution that really led to capitalism um, taking dominance on the world stage. Um but as we know, like there are many negative effects that are associated with that. we'll get into that, we'll get into that later. So um, four components of capitalism that is worth noting is the ownership, right? So you got the, the, the private individual owns a means of production. Um, and there's obviously the equity. so there's the difference between, you know the what you're selling it for and what you're creating it for there's the efficiency that's one of the main things about capitalism is, is focus on creating a product in the most efficient way that you can and oftentimes that leads to innovation because in order to do that you have to get better at making your products you have to find better ways to to make it for cheaper um, but also employment so capitalism is one of those things that it gives everyone a chance uh, to find a job when the economy is working really 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 well and then that in turn plays into the uh, into the market So uh, the last thing that I want to talk about capitalism before we move on to sort of socialism is an important aspect of capitalism, and that is when the government gets involved, because that can either make or break capitalism. What we have today is something called crony capitalism, and that is where the business interests and the corporations can sort of lobby um, the government or a government to sort of create laws that, create monopolies or that don't properly regulate and sort of create winners and losers and create inequality. Um, But that's not a feature of capitalism. That is a feature of the government's relationship with capitalism. And that's something that we'll talk about later. But all of those components sort of set the baseline for what capitalism is. And obviously, you know, we we have an hour. So if you really wanted to learn about what capitalism is, there's so many different resources you can get to, to do that. But I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to President, and he's going to talk about socialism.
2: Yeah. So, one thing that's interesting about talking about socialism is that it's part of that same line of progression as capitalism. And In a lot of ways, it's actually a backlash against capitalism. You know, as, as somebody who believes in free markets myself, it's very easy to talk about all the great things that capitalism has brought. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of drawbacks and it's some of these drawbacks that sparked the creation of the socialist system, um, particularly Marx and Engels um, and several other people after them you know, wanted to have an alternative that addressed some of the extremes of capitalism was able to distribute resources more fairly. Um, so socialism is an economic system that's based on public ownership of resources and sharing resources and the means of production and various economic goods. Um, I think there, there was one quote. Um, I think I can't remember if it was from Marx or Lenin, but I think that the, you know, from from every from each according to his ability and to each according to his need. And that the premise of socialism is that resources should be distributed fairly and based off of needs. Because one of the big problems that capitalism brought, particularly when combined with industrialism and colonialism and nationalism and a lot of these other isms that oftentimes go along with capitalism, was vast inequality. That the people who own the means of production within society control society. And you had a lot of people who were just living in absolute poverty um, as a result of this system. You know, factory workers who were completely exploited Um, By wealthy business owners who you know lived lavish lives and that what happened was that this obviously led to a lot of You know negative circumstances not only was wealth very unequal um, But you also had a lot of exploitation of workers, you know, very dangerous and negative working conditions all right, so yeah, um, basically as I was saying that you know, that socialism was this response to capitalism um, and some of the negative aspects of capitalism that a lot of people, particularly the working class, the proletariat, as Marx would have put it, um, felt were unfair. And what it sought to do was to have more collective control of the resources, to have more fair distribution of economic benefits, um, and do so in a way where it wasn't just the property owners and the wealthy who controlled society, where the workers had rights. Um, now there's a lot of different forms of socialism that took form over the years You know you had original Marxism which had a lot of influence from Engels as well then you got Leninism um, You know Trotskyism socialist feminism yes. which is interesting um, And then also like if you're you know with China which is the main communist power nowadays You know Maoism although China has moved a little bit away from that there's some other ideologies They brought into the mix um, but really, when it comes to socialism, there's a few general trends about this, um, and that, that one. There's there's a kind of there's a few I'd like to identify. So the first one, obviously, and I've alluded to this before already, is share resources. That you know that. Property ownership in the most extreme forms of socialism doesn't exist, and in less extreme forms, really is is very limited. And that property ownership and your status as somebody who controls the means of production does not give you the right, you know, to oppress the other classes. And that ideally, under a socialist framework, is the workers who own the means of production. Um, another aspect of socialism is collective benefit, and in the case of more authoritarian forms of socialism, state benefit. That socialism works very well um, with nationalism, with um, efforts to consolidate power, um, is a very good economic system in a lot of ways for uh, strategic benefit and for nationalist management of the economy. Um, like, I think China is an interesting example of this because China's combined a lot of mercantilist tendencies, which is a, more of a capitalist idea, with socialism. That they've, they've you know, have a lot of state owned companies, one way tariffs, and a focus on monopolizing the means of production and attaining self sufficiency in order to further their own national power. And that's something that, while that specific way of doing it might be more unique to China, it, it's touches on a broader trend throughout socialism which is collective benefit that rather than just you know going along the lines of individual rights and individual benefits what's good for society what makes society stronger and more powerful then like the third um aspect of it is the struggle against oppression and this is something that you hear a lot about nowadays with uh, a lot of the, you know what they call the social justice warriors sometimes the idea that a lot of People, you know, notably the working class, but also particularly when talking about feminist socialism, um, you know, women of color and, you know, people of color in general, sexual minorities, you know, people who have been historically and structurally oppressed by society, particularly through capitalist institutions, and their struggle for liberty from oppression in order to create a society that's more equal and more beneficial towards them. Um, and it's a radically different way of looking at things compared to capitalism and that, you know, I, I think there's... And briefly before we can before we continue, I have some other people talking to touch on some of that, I, I just very briefly on the mer- some one of the merits and one of the drawbacks. Like I think one of the merits is that socialism, you know oftentimes takes into consideration a lot of the non-economic Um, aspects of what benefits human beings. You know, it's more willing, I think, in some cases, to look at the strategic aspect, at the equality aspect. Um, But the detriment is that it's a less efficient way of distributing resources and a lot of times leads to a lot of horrible human rights abuses, and the reason why is because somewhat paradoxically, at least in terms of how it's put into practice, a lot of Marxist theorists would argue against me on a theoretical level, but when you look at the practical implications, that it actually has the paradoxical effect of entrenching the very classes that it seeks to abolish, that the people who are in control of the government have absolute authority and have a similar role in society as monopolies do under capitalism, which is why a lot of the worst aspects of capitalism are things that you see in socialism as well. And and that's one of the reasons why I believe in mixed economies, because you know, a lot of times a pure version of one system or the other, particularly when you combine it with power structures, you know, such as the state, is going to be very bad. Like even, you know, anarcho-communists and anarcho-capitalists who are like fully libertarian, you know, for their idea to work, like they're against the existence of the state. And in reality, that's not really how things work. You know, I don't think it's feasible. And even if I was proven wrong and it was feasible, that's not really how societies order themselves these days. But that's Really the gist of socialism, shared resources, collective benefit, collective action for the benefit of the working class and their liberation against the oppressors. Okay, so mm-hmm.
1: I have a question for both you and Jordan Preston, and this is towards <laughs> socialism and capitalism as uh, in a general sense. So would you say socialism, again, in a sense, would be, a? I guess the short term of it would be uh, collective security? That everyone's safe, there is no one, in- well. They try to get rid of inequality. You would say something like that, while or something along those lines. While Jordan's side is more along the lines of your, you have more freedom of mobility, and that's, but you're more responsible for the actions that you take.
2: Dude, so the consequences yeah. well, are
0: heavier. Well, so so let me let me let me take a stab at this real quick. I got this. Uh... Um, so I think what you're asking is actually the transition into the next thing that we were going to talk about. So like we just sort of gave the definitions of what these were, and now we're going to get into the advantages and the disadvantages. I think that's at the heart of your question, you know, is like you're sort of saying, Okay, now this is the impact of capitalism. This is the impact of socialism. So, you know, I think that's a perfect segue to get into this. But before we do, um, you know, because I have some, some advantages and disadvantages that I want to throw out there. I'm sure Preston's got his of, of both economic systems. Um, Roberto, what do you think about, uh, you know, I, I, know you, you know, cause the first time we met, you were actually coming out of like a business conference or something like that. Um, like an employment conference or something like that. So what do you think about sort of like capitalism? Do you think it sort of gives people like the opportunity to sort of pursue like a dream, like to like pursue, like, does it give them more freedom over how their life is going to turn out because they can make these choices about where they're going to work, how much money they want and what do they want to do? Um, And sort of capitalism opens up all these opportunities. Do you see it as like an avenue for like a person to control their freedom and how (coughs) they're going to live? Mm.
3: I think that I would have enjoyed earlier uh, when Rob Dell was here. Because he was um, talking about types of government. Um, And I think the first question would be uh, what role do you believe the government has in the market um, as it pertains specifically to the United States right now, I suppose, you know, um, I think if we were to speak in very broad terms between capitalism and socialism, that's one thing, but if we're to talk like today in 2019, you know, April 3rd, you know, how does it affect our lives right now, I would think that first question you have to ask is what role do you think government plays in your life and then also you know the markets that we've created you know that we've seen go up and down how do we want to control those as a public and then from there um i think y'all brought up earlier that there's not necessarily a true form of one or the other in any society Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. yeah well i mean um, as far as I know, it's, at least with capitalism, the closest thing, at least that you could see practically, uh, the closest example to a, the purest form of capitalism, or in this case, laissez-faire capitalism, where there's almost little to no government involvement, uh, the closest comparison would probably be the black market trades.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely can agree with that because what I, I, the, it sort of expands upon that because I know the black market sort of has a negative connotation towards it because of, well, you know, there's a lot of things that are done on the black market <clears throat> that not only are illegal, but in some cases, particularly with, with human trafficking, are, are just completely immoral by any mm-hmm. standard, regardless of what the law may say. Yeah. Basically, anything sure. think I think it's valid in the sense of, you know, in terms of analyzing the benefits, the harms, the patterns, the way the economy works, that the black market is what the economy looks like when the market is able to decide everything and the government does not intervene whatsoever. Because that's by definition what it is. If you're selling something illegally, it's outside the government. You know, that if you're within the legal market that you're paying taxes and you're not selling goods that are prohibited and you know, you're know you following all the laws. If the black market is a market that exists independent from the state, independent from the government. And <laughs> I was actually talking about this. I think that it's, it's interesting because it's a double-edged sword. And I, I think the black market provides a good lens through which to analyze anarcho-capitalism. Capitalism is a theory uh, because you really get the good and the bad aspects manifested. Like with the black market, in one hand, you know, it really helps people who want to challenge. Illegitimate government authority, you know, like as like as a gun enthusiast, one of the things I was talking about is like the types of weapons you can buy in the black market. If you want fully automatic RPGs, you can get that. You know, not only is that awesome from like a gun enthusiast perspective, but if you're trying to overthrow a tyrannical regime, that's great, you know. So I, I think you know, in the weapons market's only one example. There's no one of my favorite examples, you know, that, that that there's there's certain benefits that can be offered when you don't when you don't have the government getting in the way, you know, you can sort of acquire what you want, you know, whether it be weapons or something else. But the problem is is that when you had that lack of regulation, there's certain moral harms that that happened because I think the government does have a legitimate role in regulating commerce in the sense that there's aspects of commerce that are very oppressive. And when you look at human trafficking, when you look at even certain aspects of the drug trade and some of the violence that's associated with that, that when the market just runs out of control <coughs> and the invisible hand decides yeah. everything, yeah. you know, like that's one of the reasons when I was talking about the benefits of socialism mm-hmm. that you know I mentioned non-economic benefits because mm-hmm. I think if you analyze it from a very pure economic lens. And has to be hard to refute capitalism unless you're a mercantilist in which case China's the strongest economy in the world Um, but what it is is that human relationships are more complicated than just buying and selling stuff and that we have rights aside from just property you know we have the right to life we have the right to freedom and that owning another human being buying you know body parts and organs Uh like there's a lot of nasty and gnarly things that happen in the black market and I think that it's similar to how the black market demonstrates some of the extreme goods of the free market also demonstrates some of the extreme bads you know some of the harms that can come when
3: you have no government intervention. I mean maybe to both y'all because I think you brought up black markets and you followed up a little bit but To respond to the idea of black markets, I would say um, that integrity is a um, prerequisite and would hopefully be, um, you know, a part of uh, someone who is free, you know. Um, I think if we're talking about freedom or free markets, you know, you would hope that somebody has the integrity First,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and at that point, you would you would go forward under that assumption. I mean, I'm not I'm not denying that there are people out there without that, yeah. but I think within the context of this discussion, it would be easiest if we were to focus on. Or I mean, at least I would hope that the example would be one in which people haven't... I sort of have a compromise for you that I think think would be good.
0: Because I haven't yet to to speak on this black market thing, so if I can, I just want to sort of give some thoughts about what everybody said. Because there's actually an interesting uh, observation that I've gotten from hearing all of you guys, is that I think that even if you're in like a communist... Uh, hard line you know where the where the government owns the means of production you would still have black markets in some areas
2: yeah you know, yeah, it, so there, there's, there's, nowhere, whole there's whole nowhere
0: that there's nowhere that you could go on this earth where if there is a need if there is demand and if there is you know the means to acquire this, that a black market is not going to exist. So if that is the case, if this is so, you know, if it pervades all society and all man, and if black market has been with us since, like, the beginning of you know, markets, I think that it shows that um, capitalism, at least in this form, which is very close to what we have defined as capitalism, is a natural feature of human interaction. That's what, to me, it's what it shows. It's like capitalism manifests itself in societies, regardless of what their what the, what the preferred economic mode is. There will always be capitalism with us, regardless of what the government tries to do to stifle it. So that's one uh, observation that I have. Another is that you know it's it's not a perfect uh, one-to-one correlation because when you do have these black markets, a lot of times, at least in in industrialized countries, um, when you're talking about things like like prison brought up crime. Uh, what I what that does is it sort of inflates the price of these goods that are on the black market. So if the government says you can't have guns in the black market, it's not going to be a free market because you can sell those guns for a higher price because you know they're 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 rare. So you're you're cutting you're artificially cutting the supply. So that does sort of lead to infla to inflated prices. Um, and you know so and, and a lot of the times that that's you know, but I do think it's a good point that you know that is a way that the people can maintain their freedom, and sticking it to like illegitimate authorities. Um, so, but the black market is just one aspect. But what, what I want what I want to get from you guys is sort of the key advantage that I see of capitalism, and that is like imagine Elon Musk right imagine Elon Musk can you imagine him in a socialist society where he wasn't able to sort of do what he wanted to do where he wasn't able to sort of try to manifest his vision because a he wouldn't have access to the capital b he would have to fight with the government in order to have these resources and c what he wants to do is probably against what the government wants to do so to me it's 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 like he needs capitalism in order to fulfill his dream and his vision it's only possible in in a capitalist system, and that's why you saw him migrate to America. Um, so specifically, when it when it comes to like living like what we would call the American dream, or like the Chinese dream, or I, I don't even think it's you could isolate it to one country. I mean, that's what everybody wants is to succeed in life at a certain point. Do you think uh, capitalism or socialism gives the best opportunity for that?
2: Well, I would I would definitely say on on balance. Um, It would definitely be capitalism for a lot of the similar reasons that you mentioned. Because I think you know there's in terms of people's ability to succeed, I think both systems offer a lot of benefits and drawbacks. But what really distinguishes capitalism, I think, is social mobility. That what it is is that when you're able to buy and sell goods as you please, when you're able to innovate, when you're able to own intellectual property, It allows people to move up in society, you know, that yes, you do have sometimes a ruling class, people who get their wealth through hereditary means, but you also have self-made, you know, like some of the richest men in history, some of the richest men today started off in just regular families, Um, you know, and you look at at people like, you know, uh, like we were talking about the Rockefeller and Carnegie, you know, you look at Steve Jobs, you look at Elon Musk, that what happens is that when you have a free market, and when people are able to compete for resources in a fair and open manner where there's not these restrictions, there's not governments and monopolies and stuff, that, you know, that, that the market decides prices, that the people who work hard, the people who have innovative business models, the people who have good inventions, those are going to be the ones who move up and that in capitalism you're able to have somebody start very poor and end up becoming filthy, filthy rich, you know, unimaginably rich. You know, in in socialist countries, I mean, it's a lot more difficult for that to happen because you have these constraints, you know, that if you get resources, oh, you have to share it with others or oh, only the government is able to control means of production. You know, I think it's especially true in authoritarian socialism. Like, I think, you know, when you're talking about more democratic forms of socialism, perhaps you can make a counter-argument that, you know, society as a whole could achieve more. But when you're talking about, like, authoritarian forms of socialism, that even if the same benefits are achieved, you know, I, I think I think China as I've mentioned before, I think is a good example of how, you know, communism, socialism can can be on a macro scale, the the, one of the best economic systems, you know, but when you look at it on an individual perspective, in terms of if you have a person who is economically disadvantaged, but they want to move up in society, and you have a great idea that might allow them to do that, capitalism is much better at facilitating that transition, socialism has a tendency to hold people down.
0: Yeah, and I would say, uh, just to tack on to that, that it's not only about these rich tycoons becoming rich. That's not the point of Mm -hmm. capitalism. That's not how society benefits uh, from the economic system that is capitalism. Uh, I can give one good concrete example of, of what I'm talking about here. So because you have capitalism, you have a drive to become more efficient. What that means is that you're... Like, we've all taken some basic economic classes. The first thing that they teach you is the best way to achieve economic growth is through innovation and technology. If you can change the technology, you're going to uh, vastly increase your return on profit because you can be a lot more efficient. And a lot of times that these innovations uh, serve multi-dual-use purposes throughout the – you know, throughout the – the rest of society. One example of, of where technology became really really uh, profound and, and how it prevented society was was with Apple and in 2008 you know in order to acquire some profit you know they had to A. create the iPhone and B. make it at a, at a, at a sustainable price where they can operate a profit and this phone has revolutionized the way that we communicate. This phone has revolutionized the internet industry. It's created the app industry, which I think is like almost a trillion dollars now. It you know now like I think of all like it's spawned an entire you know corporations like Samsung came out of this. All of the uh you know Huawei, all of these different uh smartphone companies that copied Apple. Does do you guys remember what phones were like before the iPhone, right?
2: Yeah. It, yep. it, it well was, I I it had was, I had it, one of the like, the older ones before yeah. I got a smartphone, like yeah it was
0: night and day you remember trying to get on the internet on these devices like it was a joke you know and now everything is touchscreen. so you think of the uh, the great leap forward in progress that man has achieved off the back of that one invention right and they created that invention off of this profit motive they created this invention because they you know had more efficiency uh, with their ipod models and they were able to reinvest those profits into this project so you see in capitalism Uh, Because entrepreneurs are able to carry out their dream, at the end of that dream is usually products that uh, transform society through progress. And so I think that's an important aspect that we can't overlook. That's one of the advantages that capitalism has. I don't see that happening in in a socialist society. Now, to be fair, there is one area where uh, socialism actually could outperform capitalism. And uh, personally, I'm a capitalist, but you know I believe in you know giving giving socialism its due. And I mean, feel free to disagree, you guys. But I think that because socialist countries are more centrally planned, and I think because the government has more control over the resources in these places, that when it comes to national initiatives, like in the Soviet Union, they were actually able to have better uh, you know space technology than we were, better missile technology. Um, there were certain aspects of their industry that they had outperformed us with, you know their, their aerospace, their rockets. A lot of these things were better than uh, the, the Western countries because they were able to focus the talents of the, the best brains of their countries not to make profit but to serve a national interest. In a capitalist country, the disadvantage that we have is that your best mind that graduates from these really prestigious universities, they're gonna to want to make money, and so they're gonna work with you know Apple, or they're gonna work with you know some other tech company making consumer products. And so sometimes you can see that it, it doesn't lead to progress. It just leads to like you know unnecessary shit that we don't need, like you know uh, more high def TVs, you know. Versus if we actually use these brains to concentrate on things that humanity really, really needed, like uh, solving all the you know diseases that we have and stuff like that. So I think the focus of the top-tier talent in your country um, is a little bit more, uh, could be a little bit more directed toward things that are going to benefit humanity as a whole in an organized socialist uh, sort of planned um, civilization than a capitalist where these brains are just going to simply go to wherever the profit is. And a lot of times
2: that's not, you know, And another thing to to build off of that, I think that in terms, because one of the things that really sets capitalism apart and makes it so effective is competition. But one thing um, that I've observed is that it seems like globalization is really moving us towards an environment that's better suited to socialist models, and here's why. And, And you bring this up with the Soviet Union, and I think that's a good example. National competition. The problem is that when you're talking about domestic markets, that uh, you know that, that that there can be stagnation under socialist systems because you know without that competition, without that drive, you know things become inefficient. The state gets in the way of everything. But what we have now is not only strategic competition, but strategic competition must become more and more economic in nature. You know that with nuclear weapons, with you know, the interconnectedness of global markets, it's less and less feasible for nations to fight wars. And a lot of countries, you know, particularly China, but even the United States have been kinda of catching on to this a little bit, um, are incorporating trade policy as part of their military doctrine. They view trade and economic policy as weapons that, you know, that can be used to inflict harm, you know, strategically on their enemies. And that even if you fall short of war, like even if we step back from the modern world and look at things more you know, in the context of something like the Cold War, where it's still limited the military competition, that those competing state interests push the burden on society to innovate in order to beat out the competition. You know, to, you know, to attain and maintain hegemony. Um, and, it, it, and, the, the, and here's the thing now. That's not exclusive necessarily to socialism, that can happen with capitalism too, but here's the issue, with capitalism, these countries are going to be fragmented within, they're going to compete, they're going to basically be competing with themselves, um, strategically speaking, because of all these competing private interests within them. Whereas when you have a socialist country where all the resources are channeled, you you can accomplish so much more with collective efforts than you can just one company or one person working on something. Like, what private company has created infrastructure projects on the scale that the United States government did uh, during FDR's presidency? Nobody. You know, whatever the libertarians may say, okay, Pizza Hut built one road according to some questionably credible article that I saw on Facebook. That's it. I mean, you know, in terms of these grand infrastructure projects, governments have it. And you look at China's state-owned companies, like one of the reasons why they've been able to not only successfully copy almost everything America makes, but outpace us in a lot of areas, particularly with AI technology, they have the collective resources of a superpower to put towards one goal. And that in the past, that was checked ...by the fact that their society was inherently prone to inefficiency... ...and that could be said for any sort of socialist country. But in the context of globalization and strategic competition... ...at the economic level between societies... ...they're exposed to the same level of competition as capitalists would be... ...without those competing economic interests within their own country.
3: So from what I heard, you, you mentioned that... ...there are countries, um, for example... In, uh, Tom Clancy's book, *Dead of Honor, Mm -hmm. um, the Japanese, uh, this Japanese man, um, was motivated to use, um, foreign currency markets to, um, attack, um, the price of, you know, the dollar. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, you know, they were using the markets in, uh, you know, negative sense um but then you also followed up um and use FDR and the roads that he built the highway the federal highway system correct Mm -hmm. that entire system of roads um but from what I understand and I'm not a historian but what what years or what that would have been what in the '40s or no, what years?
2: From '32 to '40, 40, '44. And remember, China is a modern example too. And this isn't limited to years. Well, the US hold on. Thing. So, you guys,
3: you, so the the years in which FDR was accomplishing this program. '32 to '44. '32 to '44. Okay, so um, World War One ended what? '40 uh, in '19, yeah, right? '19. '1918. And then when was uh, World War II? It was like '20? Uh, from like '38 to '45. 38 to forty-five. So FDR was during thirty-two to thirty-two.
0: Yeah, he, he died, yeah, from thirty-two to forty-four. So this was he died, after he died in forty-four, and then Truman had to finish the war. So this is after
3: 44. World War One and before World War Two. Yeah, from what I from what World War One, yeah.
0: and then it sort of it starts before World War Two, yeah. but it, it goes through World yeah, War. Yeah. To
3: to complete my point, the reason I bring it up is because you mentioned that people are using economic forces as in a military sense. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but from what I understand, FDR, during those times when he was, you know, using the government to cr- create this wonderful, you know, system of roads, um, he didn't. wasn't that also motivated slightly because they had just come out of World War I, and they needed, like, a transportation system for, like, they were th- considering, like, mainland attacks and stuff, and the president at that time, federal FDR, you know, was trying to create a system in which people could move quickly... Like wasn't that a root of not, that? Not well, yeah, but well, let, let, let me
0: go after him, uh, Preston. So let's, let's stay in, in, the, in the order here, um, and then, I mean you, you can finish everything, everything that I leave out right here. But uh, just because actually what he's talking about fits very well into the advantages and disadvantages of capitalism. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that we created these roads because we knew that there was going to be a war. We created these roads because in '32, and you have to remember, after World War I, there was no way that we knew that, that another war on this scale was ever going to happen again. We had took a lot of measures to sort of uh, take the, the claws out of Germany, right? To sort of neutralize them and make sure that they wouldn't be a threat. We had a lot of measures to sort of limit the amount of uh, ships that, you know, the United States and Japan and all this can have. So we took a lot of measures to make sure that World War II was, wasn't going to happen. So we didn't know it was going to happen when the Great Depression hit. The reason why uh, these government programs were created was because FDR was trying to create jobs. He, a lot of people think that he's, especially looking at it now with a modern lens, that he was like a socialist because he was progressive. And that he was trying to use the government to sort of redistribute wealth. That's actually uh, very, very false and not true to what he tried to do. What he tried to do was save capitalism from destruction. That's exactly what FDR tried to do: is bring back capitalism from the death because of these, you know, uh, boom and bust cycles. Which goes directly into what you were talking about, because you said um, that countries can weaponize the market. In order, well, You brought this up too. Both of you guys brought this up. But what you're talking about in the Tom Clancy book is weaponizing the markets to create a bus cycle inside another country. And uh, so then that begs the question, okay, so what happens when capitalism goes through a bus cycle? And it's almost one of the worst things that could possibly happen to a civilization. When the economy goes like negative 10 or like when inflation just rapidly shoots up. Uh, when no one can eat, you know, because resources aren't getting properly al- allocated, and the government simply does not have the means to deal with these problems. I think that is one of the worst things that could happen to a government. Um, so, like, but in FDR's case, that's exactly what happened, and he had to actually use the government to, to try to re-stimulate uh... the economy and that's and that's pretty much what he did but that does that's a negative aspect of capitalism is these bust cycles and that's gonna happen there's no way to solve for that you know uh... if you're gonna go with a capitalist system there's going to be natural bubbles there's going to be uh... bull markets there's going to be bear markets It's, it's just sort of what you have to take uh... what you have to take with you um, but that being said, you do get the booms, you do get the booms, and what you see with uh, after World War II, you saw the largest economic expansion in the history of man, where the, the great economic conditions of this boom cycle uh, sort of allowed more people to come out of poverty, allowed more people to enter the middle class, allowed more people to stop uh, hunger and starvation, allowed more people to rise on every basic indicator of quality of life, than any other time in the history of man. And that's what capitalism can give you, you know? And, and in the bad times, yes, it can destroy society, but in good times, it does way better than any socialist country could possibly
2: do. That actually ties very well into something I wanted to say, because mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, both of the things we're talking about have in common, you know, me with, with economic warfare and trade warfare and stuff, and then you talking about the boom and bust cycles, which, you know, inherently are part of that. Like, really, like you, I think you put it very well, that all economic warfare is is when you're intentionally creating the bust cycle. Um, but I think it's worth discussing the pros and cons of capitalism versus socialism and being resistant to those. And there's actually something that Machiavelli talks about in The Prince that is very relevant. Um, so because of globalization, due to some of the things I've already talked about, you know, I think at least in some contexts, you can look at trade and economics through, you know, if not a military, at least sort of a militaristic or at the minimum strategic lens, um, and that Machiavelli dedicated a part of the prince to discussing whether it's better to centralize or decentralize authority within a country. And what the conclusion that Machiavelli came to was, was that when authority is decentralized, a country is very easy to conquer but very difficult to maintain control of because you're going to have all these rival warlords with shifting loyalties and alliances and you're not going to be able to have that unified rule. Whereas something with unified authority, you know, where you have one central government is very difficult to conquer because they can channel all of society's resources into fighting you. But if you do manage to conquer them, if you're a Caesar or an Alexander and you're strong enough to do it, then guess what? You have that country under your thumb because they're used to having one form of rule. And I think this applies to the economic aspect as well, that with capitalism and socialism, what this is, when you look at it in the structural level in the context of nation-states, it's who rules the country in an economic sense. In socialist countries, it's very centralized. You have the government. The resources are managed, you know, whether it be autocratically or democratically, they're managed through some sort of centralized power acting in what is presumed by that country's standards to be the public interest. So imagine, you know, a parallel could be like having one monarch, whereas in a capitalist society, you have many different princes, you know, kingdoms of many princes, as Machiavelli actually put it, um, where you have all these different billionaires and millionaires and corporations and stuff, and they're competing with one another, and they all have their own loyalties and that they all have a portion of the power within the system. And I think one of the reasons why capitalism always bounces back, but why socialism is more resilient oftentimes in the short term and is more compatible with coordinated efforts to try to accomplish collective strategic goals economically, um, you know, the, the reason for that is because, you know, capitalism is an inherently unstable system. Um, which makes it easy to conquer, but very difficult to maintain control of. It's very, you know, difficult for any kind of bus cycle to last a long time, because there's always going to be factors shifting around that go against that. New markets will be created. You know, whereas socialism, on the other hand, you know, that's something where, you know, like like China's done with their currency manipulation, like what North Korea's done, you know, in, in maintaining their self-sufficiency despite all these sanctions. That you're able to control all the factors of the economy, and you know, you can change the value of the currency and. Buy you know the means of production and you know subsidize this corporation if they're not making a profit. But if you miscalculate and stuff does happen, it can, it can send your economy back a long ways. You look at the Soviet Union; they collapsed. Russia still hasn't recovered. And I mean, yeah, part of that maybe is sanctions, but even before sanctions, they were not growing the way China was. Heck, they're not even growing the way the United States and Western Europe were. You know, even like Western European countries were growing faster than Russia in a lot of cases. Um, so, you know, that's something important to keep in mind. And I think that, you know, they're strong in different ways. And when policymakers are analyzing how can we deal with economic warfare, how can we deal with boom and bust cycles, the dangers are unique. I think with capitalism, the danger is that you're you're going to be destabilized. Whereas with socialism, you know, you're in a strong position to prevent that. The danger is more of what are you going to do if you're wrong and that you end up failing in your efforts to prevent destabilization. How can you prevent your society from being economically completely destroyed by that?
0: Uh, yeah, so I, I, definitely these, the, the economic system that you have, um, that your government prioritizes and that your, your society prioritizes, has geopolitical consequences. I mean, I think that, that is, that's, that's obvious. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why this is so, uh, a, a, such a significant thing for us to talk about. And I don't want to just talk about great power competition, although I think, Preston, you really did touch some good light on there. Um, But I would just like to put some more focus on the opposite side of the spectrum. So what happens when you have ultra-capitalist countries that are very successful (laughs) in innovating, that are very successful in marketing their products, that are very efficient and that have huge amounts of capital to where it just dwarfs anything that any other country can help to match. And a lot of these developing countries or underdeveloped countries... Want a capitalist model? They see what the United States has achieved. They see uh, what happened in East Asian companies. I mean, East Asian countries when they make uh, market reforms, uh, they see what Western Europe has and sort of the stability in their society and how a lot of that is largely due to the to the to the market system. And there are entrepreneurs in Africa or in South America. But the problem is, is that with globalization, they simply can't compete. You know, it's harder for some uh, Ghanaian farmer to make bananas and on at, at, a, at a, such an economy of scale to where they can compete with Dole. You know what I mean? So because the Western countries and uh, Eastern countries that have you know really really uh, done a great job of developing their their markets, because they are so far ahead, it leaves these developing countries so far behind and at truly at a disadvantage. And you have to ask yourself whether this is fair to them. Uh, under a free market system because the only way that these African countries could possibly hope to actually export their products to Western markets is if, or to Asian markets, is if there was some kind of system to where These more developed countries put in more developmental aid assistance or, you know, train these farmers in in how to produce things and how to use, you know, like today genetically modifying, you know, agriculture is just, it's a standard whether people like it or not, but, you know, sort of using 21st century uh, capitalistic techniques. I think is, is something that you know that these African countries lack, or, or that these you know American countries lack, South American countries lack, and it, it's really hard for them to compete with Western capitalist systems. And I think that that's you know a, a true problem that you have because that's going to create you know global inequality. And we've seen you know the uh, you know I think the World Bank and all these other you know development banks try to do that to sort of try to make up for the inequality. That's why depending on uh, where you are on the developmental index, you do receive some incentives. Like I know China has some because their standard, what is it? Their because their per capita is really really low or something. Well, like that? Well, because it used to be so, like they're yeah. strong now, but what it yeah. is is
2: like it, the the decisions but, were made at a time when they were much
0: poorer. right, right. But that but those indicators, you know, like like I, I agree with you. Like they no longer represent the true uh, developmental stage of China. But for a lot of these, you know, uh, poorer countries, I, I think they really do. Um, So that's one of the, definitely the negatives that I
2: see. I I want to respond to that because I think that's actually the source of a lot of misconceptions. Developing economics, next to the petrodollar, probably one of the biggest scams in human history. I'm going to lay it down for you. You know, that's actually one of those systems that actually creates the problems that it seeks to solve. And I'm of the position that free markets actually help liberate these developing countries, and here's why. There's there's two main reasons for this. Comparative advantages, and then also the the prices of goods produced by developed countries. So the thing that we're overlooking is that developed countries, oftentimes, labor is very expensive um, because they've progressed to that point where there's a lot of high purchasing power, um, and and, and there's a lot of high-end manufacturing and stuff like that. What that does is there's a lot of industries that can't be done there efficiently anymore. There, you know, certain types of farming, certain types of mining for natural resources, a a lot of things that you know require large amounts of labor. And that a free under a free market system that allows not only these countries to export those things in which they specialize in, but also because of the advantage that free market no not not free market that developed countries have in technology and being able to produce things, that that lowers the price of goods. And what does that mean? They can sell goods at prices that the poorest citizens can afford. And what happens when you introduce all these tariff incentives for developing countries, what you actually do is increase global inequality and create a corporatist global system. Because here's what happens: it does two things. It increases the prices of goods for the people living in these developing countries, and it decreases the global average labor costs, um, which is to the detriment of workers, but to the benefit of the corporate ruling class. So what happens when you have all these one-way tariffs, you know, something from the United States or from Germany that normally could be made at a low price that even the poor citizens can afford now is artificially high because all they're protecting their domestic industry they want to quote unquote develop and what does that do it makes it more difficult for the poor people within these countries to raise their standard of living because a product they might otherwise be able to afford are now not able to afford but here's the other problem it decreases global wages because what happens when you have these one-way tariffs because that's mainly what development economics is that you allow the developing countries to have these huge tariffs that would they export to developed countries but not the other way around to grow their industry but here's the problem with that what that does is it makes it so that the the prices in developed countries for labor become artificially low that in order like for for china for example if they have this big one-way tariff you know a guy in the united states who can make something for ten dollars an hour Um, you know, he has to make it for five to say, to sell something at the same price as a Chinese person who makes it for 15. Hold on, I'm almost finished. And what that does is that it decreases global labor prices, not only in developed countries, because what can happen is that in some instances, that the high prices of labor in developed countries, or what are going to cost Companies to decide to hire in some of these other places and create job opportunities for them, but what they're able to do by lowering those wages, then that keeps you know that that upper end of where wages can go a lot lower, um, and on aggregate it increases inequality, and that's the problem that we've been seeing in both developing and um, developed countries, you know, and why global inequality has increased. Like there's at a, at a certain point you have to ask yourself if all these development economics measures and this social justice marks you know rhetoric about you know allowing developing countries to have mercantilism if that's effective why is global inequality so much higher than it's ever been why do the wealthiest what 1% own 50% of the wealth when that's never been the case before the system's not working development economics is a scam that corporations and authoritarian governments use to consolidate their power and the free market is the key to lifting people out of poverty because it allows people in developing countries to specialize in labor intensive industries that they can do much more efficiently than developed countries can and it also allows them to, pro- to procure these manufactured goods at much lower prices because without the tariff, they're able to buy things from Germany and the United States at, at, at prices that, are, that even the poorest citizens are able to afford and that they can have a car or a computer or, or some other sort of good you know, for, for a very low price right. and that they're able to raise their standard of living and improve their prospects of becoming successful economically later on.
0: Right. So uh, I, I too have a problem with developmental economics. I, I think it's a terrible idea when you're putting when when the EU puts on these artificial regulations and these artificial tariffs on developed countries, and and they respond, and you know so on and so forth. And you have all these artificial barriers to trade. I, I think the free market. Is a, is a better option, but what I was talking about, Preston, was actually when the free market exists. I was talking about in cases where you don't have a system where there's a developmental, economic, social justice system. I mean where an, a European country, or an, Ameri- an American country, or a Japanese country has equal access to a market in, let's say, Central Asia, that an African country does. Both of them have equal access to this market. Both of them have the same amount of tariffs put on both of them. It's much harder for the African country because of the, the lack of knowledge in the 21st century capitalistic uh, model to sort of compete with these, uh, with these highly, higher developed countries. And because, Preston, they could utilize, they have the capital to actually offload their labor sources these American and Japanese companies could actually hire people from El Salvador to build their bananas. Like, labor is not really a huge component of that. It's the entire... When you're talking about in a globalized system, you're talking about these globalized corporations that have trillions of dollars can just simply uh, squash the bug that is your local Ghanaian farmer. But uh, to, to agree with you, Preston, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right about developmental economics and this idea that we're going to sort of legislate fairness into the market. No, the free market is always is always the solution, but when what I, what I what I meant by development is like there's actually aid that you can give to help these countries, not through tariffs, not through anything that is going to affect the way that the market is operating, but to help them with expertise and to help them with, you know, with uh, manufacturing processes and things of that nature, which I think is something that, you know, we should be giving these countries to help them compete because that doesn't affect, you know, the, the tariffs or that doesn't affect, it doesn't uh, misallocate the resources it's simply giving them you know the ability to better to be better capitalists
2: well but um, well, actually to kind of, to kind of build on, on what you were saying like uh, well I, I sort of disagree with the last part but I think by and large what you said I, I agree with and I, I think in a lot of ways enhances my own argument because there's something that you, that you mentioned I want to jump on um, and that was what you're talking about the big mega corporations you know the the international corporations who they're they're able to come in and that they're able to, you know, outcompete any of the, the local competition. And I think when it comes to capitalism, you know, in a lot of ways, corporatism, I think, is at the root. You know, you said cronyism in the beginning of this mm. podcast. I feel like that's an appropriate term as well. Um, is at the root of a lot of the problems that we associate as being part of. Of capitalism, you know, that, that the free market allows a lot of mobility, but what happens is that corporations, you know, these multinational corporations, you know, uh, or, or in the case of China, state owned corporations that have gone multinational are able to monopolize resources in such a way that it really stifles people's economic opportunity. Like, heck, you know, what I would one of the arguments that I made earlier, you know, may you may or may not agree with this, but you know, before this podcast, I was talking to Nick and I had talked about that, that, that in my is my view that China is the only country in the world that has um, a colonial empire. And the reason why is because they've been able to use their state-owned companies to essentially, you know, buy out a lot of developing countries and take control of all the resources. But I'm not letting, what Western. Are, let me finish. I'm not no, letting, This let, is let me, let We have
0: 10, we have 10 Yeah, minutes. no, no, I'm almost done. Uh, I'm, no, all, I'm this, almost done. This, this is actually
2: gonna be what you're talking
0: about. Uh, so we have 10 minutes, so actually. Yeah, no, I got actually, like
2: one more, like one more thing.
0: Trust trust me, President. this is this is gonna be what you're talking about. Okay. So. All right, but, whatever, man. You're, you're gonna answer this. Yeah. I just to to give the readers sort of the pivot. It, we talked about the, the, the bad things of capitalism, but now I think this is a perfect transition to talk about the negatives of socialism yeah. and, 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 and a planned yeah. economy. So well, what,
2: what I was going to say, I think the negatives of socialism, what's weird is that corporatism actually, I think, embodies some of the worst characteristics of both. Mm-hmm. Because I think China, with their state-owned companies, right. embodies the negatives of socialism. But before I critique socialism more, I, I want to avoid letting Western countries off the hook. Um, you know, that this, uh, you know, I know I criticize China a lot, but you know who I'm more upset with than China is the United States government, because we've enabled this problem. United States foreign policy has been the greatest humanitarian catastrophe in the history of mankind. Wait, are and you talking about Yeah, I'm, I'm our, getting back to that. I'm getting back to that. Okay, and, uh, I think our, and I think our support of China is part of that. But what <laughs> it is is that United States multinationals do the same thing, you know, and that I think corporations are sort of weird in the sense that they operate in this strange space. You know, on one hand, they exist within the free market, but on the other hand, they stifle the free market. But to go back to socialism, that I think, you know, when you look at it in this global sense, if we we get more theoretical on our analysis, that that socialism (coughs) have that collective power that's overbearing Uh, over any mm -hmm. kind of... know, that is overbearing over any kind of other economic interest, that is something that causes, you know, subjugation to a large extent, that when people are free to pursue their own economic ambitions, you know, including at a national scale, if you're talking about a a developing country is trying to develop their own internal Industry, their own, you know, export markets and that sort of thing, ordering the world based on this idea of shared resources and centralization is not something that's good. And you know, and it, it parallels in some ways uh, similar concepts that we talked about earlier domestically. You know, that when the government owns everything or when the public owns everything, you know, that somebody with a great idea might be limited in what they're able to do, and that socialism, in a lot of ways you know, resembles imperialism, which, you know, a lot of times imperialism is critiqued um, as within a capitalist framework. We associate imperialism and capitalism as going hand in hand, but I think increasingly what we've been seeing, what we saw with the Soviet Union before and what we're seeing now with China, is that socialism can be imperialist as well, and in a lot of cases, you know, the corporation and the ability of the corporation to act above the law and to not be loyal to any one country or group of people has a lot to do with it, that you have individuals who are they're global citizens, they're part of the global ruling class, and if they're not loyal to any one country, if they are, it's because that country's government owns them, and that they're able to basically act with impunity and do what they want and that if you have people in Vietnam who are trying to make a life for themselves, you buy out everything over there and you take control of it, and whatever opportunity they had at being able to compete at the same level is stripped from them.
0: Right, so, uh, yeah, so definitely to, to sort of piggyback on that, I think, like, If we want to talk about socialism and, like you said, getting back to like a theoretical framework, it's a very dangerous ideology because it's way more radical than capitalism. You know, you can say what you want that, yeah, there's selfish capitalists, but there's no, not one country that has a society where there's not selfish people. There's selfish socialists as well. but when it comes to socialism, it's actually a tenet in you know, Marxist theory. You know, like the, the, the main foundation for socialist thought, and you'll see this in almost every major socialist country that has existed until now, that there is an emphasis on organization to overthrow the government. That in order to uh, seize the means of production, you have to use whatever, uh, whatever it takes in order to take control of the government to institute a socialist system and in the United States our most uh, heinous since the Civil War the most heinous um, clashes between uh, police authorities and uh, sort of labor groups and, and other groups were between the communists and the Marxists because in their eyes you have to overthrow the United States government because that is the only way that you're going to institute a socialist system so when you do that you're 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 sort of if you if you are a socialist it, it makes you more radical it makes you Want to do what they did in the in the in the 30s, which is blow people up, because mm-hmm. that's a way to send a message. I don't think you get that with a capitalist society or in capitalist ideology. It's definitely something that's that's not preferred. And uh, another thing that you get is that it because you have such a, a radical intent in its formulation, that only intensifies as a socialist. Like in, in the cases where a socialist government has been successful. Then there are also different ideologies left and right inside this socialistic uh, inside a socialistic model, and what you see is constantly the social the social the socialistic power has to sort of purge the left and his right, or wherever he's at. If he's on the left, he has to purge the right. If he's on the right, he has to purge the left. So you see in socialistic countries a natural path to tyranny because it is ingrained in the political thought of these. Um, of this ideology to be radical, to use violence, to use Machiavellian tactics in order to ensure that you have the model that you think is preferred for your society. So it leads to a lot more instability in the long run than uh, in capitalistic countries, and you have seen that as evidenced by almost every major uh, socialist country that has existed since Marx.
2: Yeah, and and I'll just say something real quick, and then I I think one of y'all could could say something. I I think that's one of the reasons why the Founding Fathers recognized property as so important in checking government power. Um, Because even though the systems are very different in a lot of ways, um, the absence of property rights, I think, is one of the areas where socialism... And feudalism kind of mir- uh, mirror each other, you know, that that the problem with, you know, under like a feudalist society that, that pre-existed or that existed before communism or socialism or capitalism, any of that kind of stuff, is that unless you were the lord of the manor who was the one and only person who could own any lands or, you know, an arist- aristocrat or something, you didn't really have any agency, you know. And that what it is that property rights place limits on the authority that, governments and corporations and other, you know, powers within societies have, you know, because property rights basically say that you can't just take, you know, anything from from citizens, you know, and and it's a limit on the ability of people to consolidate control over the economic resources in society using power and coercion. All right, so
0: uh, the, the last thing, because I think we're right up against it, guys, it's been a very fascinating conversation. Uh, we've been pretty structured up until now, but I know that we want to sort of say what we feel, and this is the part where you let your conviction, you know, shine right out of your, your heart or your brain or whatever it is. So uh, let's start with you, Robert. Let's just give you your final thoughts on everything that we've talked about
3: um, and, you know, your observations on this subject. Um, I think... Um I think that um, our personal production that uh, anybody as an individual, you know, works whether it's like an hourly rate or they work an hour on their personal project, that uh, the work that a person does, Mm -hmm. I think is a part of their possessions.
2: Yeah.
3: And the reason I say that is because like he was just saying, the government one of the roles of government is to protect property, personal property, an individual's personal property. And I think that um, money is an extension of your personal work, it's a reflection of your property, it's what people trade as labor. A dollar or whatever is like, I'm gonna do work for you, I mean, we think it's, it, these are just final thoughts, but I'm, glad, I just, I'm just glad you brought up the idea of possessions and the government protecting an individual's possessions because I think that's critical in the conversation of socialism versus capitalism because I think that the American government is designed to defend a person's individual property rights, but the idea of socialism introduces the government stepping in and saying this is how an individual should use their own personal right. Oh, own property and so i think that's where the discussion really kind of lies what do you think uh, that leads but to? this is just final thoughts so what do
0: you think that would lead to
3: i don't know i'm just bringing it up and i'm glad you mentioned possessions from there i'm just going to pass it on uh for everybody else
1: all right awesome well for my final thoughts um a while back i wanted to mention this when jordan you mentioned well you and preston to an extent you guys were mentioning about uh crony capitalism in the united states uh, I want to do make a little bit of a clarification uh, for those who aren't. Uh, I would say the better example of what a real crony capitalism type of society would be, I would say, would be the Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin right now, where it's basically run by a bunch of mob bosses. By this point, now the United States, well, officially, because I will not refute, I will not just, I will not refute the concept that the U.S. does have aspects of crony capitalism that does exist mind you that is a part of it but officially speaking the United States is a state uh, capitalist type of society yes it is capitalist but it does have government interference but in specific fields like for instance uh, garbage disposal and no matter what city you're in you're only going to see one company of trash disposal per city otherwise if you had that sort of competition it, it would mess up the routes and everything Now, I would say, a while back I asked you all a question involving the differences between the two. Like, what is the underlying factor? Because you guys had a a bunch of great points. It's just that it's a lot of information, the process. And for a lot of people, it's going to be somewhat hard to swallow. So, uh, I'm just going to basically repeat what I said before. That capitalism, if you had to put it in a simple sentence, it's really that as the individual for the most part as for the individual you have the freedom of mobility you're able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps from someone who's basically eating dirt to eating gold in the end of the at the end of your life and then for socialism it's well you're more restricted uh, Even though you're talented, even if you're talented, yes, you can get into high positions, much like in capitalist societies. The only problem is you have more obstacles to go with. You have to make more political connections because it's all bureaucratic or centralized. However, the benefits that you could get from a socialist society, a mostly socialist society, is that you're going to have more security. You're not going to have, for instance, long sharks nipping at your heels, but, again, you'll be able to be have some type of security. You should be able to have some type of food. But when things start turning south, it's going to head south faster than you can say, oh, my God. But if it's a capitalist society, it's going to get bad, but it's going to be short-lived, and you're going to have a quick upturn very quickly. But even then, if... For all of us, I think we can all imagine that for the most part that we support the concept of mixed economies at least. That way you get the best of both worlds. You have some security. You have some type of safety net. But at the same time, you can work within those type of boundaries and still be able to reach the top depending on what you have done
2: or how well you have done it. I think the way that I would finish it off is, is this. That... The capital or, the, the, or between socialism and capitalism, you know the, the socialist looks at the rich person and says no one should have so much. But the capitalist looks at the rich person is, and says everyone should have so much. Uh, at the end of the day, you know I'm a free market type of person and I think capitalism is a great system. Um, But the reason why I don't think it's good to completely dismiss socialism is because capitalism has its limitations. And even though I think socialism on balance is a bad system, I think some of the points that socialism brings up, uh, I think define and describe the limits of capitalism. So I just want to leave off with a few points. I think that capitalism and free markets by and large is the way to go. Um, but there's some exceptions to that, and I think areas where you have low market in or low market elasticity, where there's not really a, a, a an industry that's conducive to competition. You know, instances where there is non-economic factors involved, or when you have um, you know negative externalities, such as you know talking about uh, regulating pollution, and especially when you have uh, strategic questions involved. You know about you know competing with other nations for economic resources. Those are the areas where sometimes the wisdom of socialism and more collective economies can come in. You know that I've I've read a lot of literature from both you know capitalist and communist and socialist perspectives. You know I've read The Wealth of Nations. I've read you know, you know Marx and Engels as well. Um, and one of the thinkers that I like the most is is Adam Smith. And the reason why is because he was a capitalist, but I think he recognized the limitations of capitalism. Capitalism is prone to monopolies, that you know, capitalism, you know, that it, it can be a system that sometimes is is unstable. And I think the job of government, because that's really one of the big questions, you know, at at least in terms of the practical application of these theories, um, as was brought up before, is the the role of government. And I think that the government should act to make sure that the free market is preserved and that people are able to compete with one another within the free market on an even playing field you know so anti-monopoly measures you know, protectionist measures against countries who are unwilling to get rid of their own protectionist measures regulations on pollution and certain you know very dangerous products like like cigarettes that cause Healthcare problems that have you know that have costs associated with them, you know, and then you know re- regulations on any kind of industry that you know doesn't have a lot of elasticity and where you know there's not going to be a lot of competition due to things like natural monopolies. I think those are instances where the government needs to step in, um, and where a system that resembles what socialists and you know and Marxists and communists and Leninists and so forth describe. Um, isn't necessarily such a bad idea and I think that capitalism has a lot to gain and can moderate some of its extremes and remedy some of its weaknesses by recognizing areas where the free market is not well suited to deal with the problems and embracing socialism in those areas. That being said, society as a whole I think should be ordered um, around the ideas of free market because the freer the market, the freer the people and we want to have a free people that way we can all live in prosperity, have our rights and liberties respected, be in peace with one another and overall build a great society, great civilization.
0: Right. So. I want to talk about a joke that I heard from Milton Friedman, and he sort of, you know, encapsulized the worst aspects of both uh, in, in this joke. And what he says is, in a capitalist system, you know, the, uh, the employer can exploit you. He has basically all the, uh, all, the, all, the, all the ace cards, all the high cards in his hand. You, in a lot of times, have to sort of, if he doesn't want to pay you or if he's going to fire you, Um, If he doesn't want to give you health care, you know, throughout the history of the capitalist system, then he reserves that right or like a free market system where the government can't intervene to dispense with you as he pleases. And so if you're a worker in a capitalist system, that oftentimes your biggest worry is you don't want to get fired. Whereas in a socialist system, because it's so collective and because the government is so powerful that your biggest problem is that if you have a problem with the system and you let that be known, your biggest problem is you don't want to get fired at. So that's the difference. One is you don't want to get fired, one you don't want to get fired at. And with that I'll get into my analysis of, of the true, um, you know, of what I think about this whole conversation and what I think really needs to be said to our, to our viewers here. Um, So the first thing that I believe, because this is where I'm going to get into my my personal beliefs, and I haven't really uh, said many of those, but I think, I, I'm an ardent capitalist. I love capitalism all the way. And that's a that's sort of a weird thing to say because I'm a progressive, you know. And in today's day and age, you equate progressivism with socialism and socialist policies. But that's not me at all. I'm an FDR progressive and I, and I believe in capitalism. I believe in the merits of capitalism, which I'll get into in my final analysis here. But what I think what socialism does is it puts too much emphasis on the government to solve the problems of society. And when you do that, there's one thing that suffers more than anything else. And that's the aspect of individual responsibility. That it is... It is not the government's responsibility to try to save the whole world. That is what the individual is supposed to do. The individual is supposed to become the best human being that they can possibly can that they can possibly be and to use their, their potential you know, in order to make it in this world. And what we see in the capitalist system is that it puts that emphasis on responsibility. And some of the greatest you know, uh, most capable and able human beings, those that have mastered their talents, entrepreneurs are you know these CEOs they know how to get things done in the world they know how to create wealth they know how to add value and that is important because when you have that responsibility you're not going to be a non-factor something that contributes a stable amount of, of value to the world no you're gonna be you're gonna have individuals that can like take Jeff Bezos for example right everyone hates Jeff Bezos but there's one thing that he's done that no one can 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 look down upon now I think he has what 80 billion dollars or something like that in his personal bank account. But how how much is Amazon worth? Amazon is I mean do, do we have anybody that can that can look up the number? I I can tell you it's like maybe what 300 billion dollars like like what the company Amazon is worth. They
1: they said that uh, Amazon. As far as they can tell, How as much as over really? time, it's the closest thing to being a trillion dollar right. company.
0: Right. So you have an individual. Yes, he has $80 billion. But he has created whatever a trillion dollars $80 billion in value to be, you want to talk about wealth distribution. That is wealth that is distributed over the entire world. That money is money that he created um, simply out of his innovation and out of his creativity to create products that consumers want to buy and uh, creating value by some of the ways that we talked about earlier, that's something you're not going to get with social with a socialist system. And because of that, because of that the innovation and the value that it adds, so it, it, it is the best way for humankind to lift themselves out of poverty, one, but to achieve a standard of life on earth that is acceptable. You look at socialist systems and almost every type of service that they use, the technology has been developed by capitalists. So capitalism has allowed human beings to arrive at a stage where the socialists can utilize those technologies for their own benefit, for their lifeline. For them to say that, yes, socialism is good because we have doctors that have mammograms and that have these ultrasounds and because we have this medicine. When all of these, you know, all of, we have the infrastructure and we have the telecommunications networks. All of these things were brought by capitalism. And that is the number one reason of why, if you're listening to this, you're going to be a capitalist. Because not only do, does it uh, emphasize innovation in the creation of products that transform the way human uh, human advancement looks like, but that compounds over time. That compounds over time. So that these um, innovations add up. So like the what is it the, the you know um, the transportation systems that we had in the beginning, we saw that we could do better. So we went from train, we went to steam engine, and we went to car, and we went to. You know, high speed rail, we went to plane, and all of these things, you know, like look what all these things have done for humanity. Um, and the, uh, the, the impacts that all of these things have on the market. And like I said, it continually. Compounds, and that's why if you switch from a capitalist system to a socialist system, you no longer have that compounding that compounding factor. At least not to the to the rate that you are going to have. In yeah, a just to interject
2: system. real quick to address the question you raised earlier, because uh, I wanted to look up some more recent data. It hit a trillion dollars at a certain point. Right now, Amazon is worth seven hundred and two point four six billion dollars. That yeah. is a lot. Of- so okay. almost six hundred
0: <laughs> billion dollars. So create, were those? Your
2: final that, thoughts?
0: That Jeff. Well, I'm almost finished here. That Jeff Be- that Jeff Bezos has created. Now think about that. Now the socialists are the ones that like to champion wealth redistribution, but Jeff Bezos has created 600 billion dollars, which is I think the entire U.S. defense budget, if I'm not if I'm not wrong, or, or pretty damn near close to it. And um, he's done that through the capitalist system, and that is one example. How many capitalists out there, throughout the you know since the beginning of capitalism, have generated this type of wealth? It only can come from a capitalist system. The last thing that I want to say is that um, if you're out there and you live in a capitalist system and you're scared of the big brother tyranny, because I'm not going to sugarcoat it, this crony capitalism stuff does exist. And I think Nick did a very good job of uh, 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 speaking to the reality of it, at least it, it, at how it affects America, and sort of being practical and saying, look, it's, this isn't the the boogeyman that you fear it is. We're not in a Russian Situation, but there are some components of it. But Americans, because you know, this is the free uh, free market thing. You still have the power to control these industries because you have the power of the purse. You are the one who buys these products. And you can put pressure on companies if they are acting in ways that are unsustainable or if they're not treating their workers in the right way or if they're sort of not listening to regulations or if they're being corrupt, you know, in whatever way you want to. A good example of this is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola used to not care about water supply. Coca-Cola used to, you know, use water resources uh, unsustainably and there was a movement by, you know, environmentalists to create boycotts, to to boycott Coke in order to get them to change their stance on the way that they use water supply. And Coke responded. They responded, you know, because they, you know, and it wasn't because they're good people. No, it was because once, they, once the people figured out how to get to their bottom line then it became a, a serious enough problem to where the board is going to want to fix it so in a capitalist system you can solve for all the problems that we talked about. You don't have to go to a socialist system to fix a capitalist system. You look at the um, when we used to have child labor. You look at when we used to overwork our people. You used to look at when the working conditions were terrible. We solve those within a capitalistic uh, within a capitalistic model, and we can solve crony capitalism within a capitalistic model if the people exercise. Their power of the wallet and the purse, and with that, I just want to say that uh, you know this was this was a great discussion. We talked about the importance of these two um, uh, resource allocation uh, mechanisms. Uh, we talked about the advantages, the disadvantages. So sort of some practical implications, and we talked about our, our, our final thoughts and our personal theories. And if you made it this far, thank you. I want to thank Amber for, you know, being our host and sort of, you know, allowing us to have a professional-sounding podcast. You know, we don't have to use our phones anymore. <laughs> yeah. We're the big time now. Uh, Preston, as always, for giving some really great and brilliant insight and, in, um, you know, challenging my, my beliefs and making me, you know, reaffirm my, uh, you know, question the way that I think and sort of, you know, double down on stuff that I believe. And uh, Nick, you know, for coming out here, I think this is, you're, you're starting to rack up these podcasts. And it's always interesting to hear what you have to say. And Roberto came through with the pizza. So uh, thank you, everybody.
2: All right. Thank you.